Well, we made it through another tea, and it was glorious as always, and I think we heard um, Lyle mention that there were some people who made, um, who responded to the gospel message, and that is awesome. That's what it's all about. So, um, and for those of you who didn't go to the tea, you, um, you missed the, that I accidentally tucked my shirt in. I don't like tucking my shirt in. I'd like to say it's because I'm fat, but it's... I didn't like it when I was 125 pounds in, in high school, so it's not that. Well, before we get started with the, the, the meat of the message today, I just want to go over a few rules for life. Um, for instance, if quitters never win and winners never quit, then who is the fool who said quit while you're ahead? Notice I say these after John left the drum set, so... Just in your mind, if you can picture, but I'm done at the end of these. Why does a slight tax increase cost you $200 and a substantial tax cut saves you 30 cents? That'll preach. <laughs> All right. Um, here's one for you, you guys who do gardening. Um, when weeding, the best way to make sure you are removing a weed and not a valuable plant is to pull on it. If it comes out of the ground easily, it's a valuable plant. All you health nuts out there, you're going to feel stupid someday, dying for no apparent reason. Or, or health is merely the slowest possible rate at which one can die. This is very true in my life, and probably many of you, but the easiest way to find something that you lost around the house is to buy a replacement. <laughs> I like that one. Um, whenever I feel blue, I start breathing again. <laughs> Some of you are getting me. Thank you. Laughter is medicine for the soul. Um, <laughs> all of us could take a lesson from the weather. It pays no attention to criticism. I like this one. How is it that one careless match can start a forest fire, but it takes a whole box to start a campfire? <laughs> Anyone been there before? I remember going on camping trips where I'm like trying to start this, and I'm like, this is the last one, guys. This is, this is better be it. Uh, you can still get the last word in. Apologize. Let me pray, and then I'll get into our actual message. Jesus, I just pray you'd be with us today. Be with our ears, be with my mouth, be with our hearts and eyes. Lord, if I say stupid things, protect the people in here from that. And if I say things that you want to cut to the heart, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would soften the heart, that it might receive the surgery that you intend to do on us, that you would make us who you want us to be. Um, bless this time. Let us not stay the same, knowing that you have us in process of becoming better than we are. I pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I want to thanks, thank Jim Nevar for not wearing a Packers shirt today. That would have made it particularly... We had a couple over here, first service, that were both wearing Packers jerseys, and that was um, particularly distracting. And since um, we play Dallas on um, Thanksgiving, I don't have to worry about that. 
on a Sunday. So, yes, I am a fan of the Washington Redskins football team, so they play this evening. My topic today is repentance. As I was sitting here thinking about the church, and when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the, um, the, the general church in America. Um, there's different specifics um, and intricacies of churches around the world, but as I thought about the church in America, I thought there might be some things that I see in the scriptures that I don't see in the church in, in America. And one of those things that I, as I thought about that, was this idea of repentance. I'm not talking about just a generic uh, getting saved repentance. I'm talking about a culture of repentance, a posture of repentance. And so I want to deal with this concept of what does it mean to be people of repentance? What does it mean to be a repenter? Is it a once-and-done thing? Is it a lifestyle? The dictionary defines repentance... I'm sorry... (laughs) The, the, the dictionary defines repentance as to feel or show that you are sorry for something bad or wrong that you did and that you want to do what is right. That's okay, but the dictionary often falls short of the fullness of what the scriptures tell us. When we look at the Greek and the Hebrew text in the Bible, what the, what the Bible talks about when it's talking about repentance is a change. It's a change primarily and first of all in our thinking. You think one way about something, and you decide that that's a wrong way of thinking, so I'm going to change that. It also talks about repentance as turning, turning from something. It's as if you're going in a direction, and you're saying, that's bad. It's bad, and I have not, I've got to turn away from that. So it's turning from something. It's turning away. One aspect of repentance that I think we often are lacking is that the Bible also talks about turning to something. I talked about this last week when we were dealing with the idea of sanctification. Sanctification is kind of uh, related to repentance in that we're set apart from the world, but we're set apart for a purpose. And sometimes we miss that aspect of it. We miss the fullness of what it means. Same with repentance. We're to turn away from something, but we're to turn toward something. Let me set, set up a, uh, an example here. When I was younger, I used to have issue with, with the older people in my church. Um, if you feel like you're an older people in the church, forgive me, but bear with me because this will get better by the end of this illustration. But I always felt judged by the people in our church. I always felt like they, I used to call, refer to them as the suits, you know, and they always looked at me and they, they had something to say with how I looked, something to say about how I dressed. They never would look at my heart and see who I was as a person. Well, in order to help you with this, let me show you a little bit of what I look like. So... <laughs> So yeah, I was a metalhead. You know, I had really long hair about down to here, and most of my friends were like that. And, um, and so yeah, a lot of people were like, hey, your son, you need to get a haircut. And I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's just the way I like to look. And I, and I got tired of it. So take that away. That's just a quick illustration. We need to look at all that. So, so I, was still, I, was, I looked at these, these older people, and I got tired of being judged by them. I got tired of the miss in my heart. I got tired of all those things. Then came the day when I decided I wanted to try and get a job at Kit's Music House up in um, College Park, Maryland. I wanted to work in the piano department there. Of course, that's a, a uppity-type position, so I had to get a suit, and I got my hair cut real tight, and I was looking really good. I mean, kind of like I do now. Right? Right? <laughs> really good. So... <laughs> And I go into to interview for this job. Long story short, I didn't get it. But um, that's a lot of wasted hair. So, 
So while I was up in College Park, I decided that I'd run by a store that I'd always frequent in called, um, called uh, Chuck Levin's Washington Music Center. It was, a, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a hub for a lot of us rock and rollers. You know, you get a bunch of guitars and amps. And um, I was pretty tight with the people at Chuck Levin's. I'd walk in, they'd know me by name and say, hey, Chris. And they'd say, have you checked out this Zion guitar? Have you checked out this amp? And they'd just hand me a guitar and I'd just go there and sit back and play. Well, this day was different. I just left that interview, still had my suit on, had my incredibly sharp, short, tight haircut, and, um, and they really didn't give me the time of day there. They didn't recognize me. They kind of gave me the cold shoulder, and I pretty much got treated by most of the salespeople at Chuck Lovins like I didn't really belong there. I didn't really fit in. And something really hit me, almost like a punch in the face there. See, I was always upset at the suits. I was always upset at the old people. Why couldn't it be like my friends? My friends accepted me for who I was. I didn't have to perform for them. I didn't have to dress up for them. I didn't have to decorate myself for them. The suits wanted me to look like them. Why can't they be like my friends? Well, I just discovered what my friends are like, right? My friends aren't as accepting as I thought they were. In other words, when I stopped looking like them, they stopped giving me the time of day. And so what I had to do right there is I had to do what? I had to repent. I thought something about my friends, about the way my friends were, and I realized that is so wrong. And I repented of my arrogance. I repented of my self-righteousness. Does that, does that help understand what repentance is? It's when you're confronted with something about yourself that you realize is seriously wrong. I could get stubborn and stick to my guns and say, my friends are better than you. Or I could say, mm, something wrong with this, and I need to change. I've told that story a lot, especially as I work with kids, because a lot of kids struggle with that idea of being judged. It doesn't excuse the suits, you older people who are going, oh, look at you, you look horrible, and stuff like that. And... And, and failing to see the inner person because of the outer appearance. It doesn't excuse that, but it, also, but it does recognize that that same judgmentalism exists in my heart. That same judgmentalism exists in this other group's hearts. That's repentance. So what I want to do is I want to unfold some aspects of repentance with you, as many as I can, um, this is a deep and deep, broad topic, so I'm not going to touch everything there is about repentance, but I just want to help you guys come to terms with it and what it means in your life. One of my favorite dictionaries is Unger's Bible Dictionary, and Merrill Unger, when he talks about repentance, he talks about three stages of repentance, and this has always been very helpful to me. The first stage he refers to as fear. This is a legitimate stage of repentance. I wouldn't say this isn't repentance, but there are some aspects of this we need to understand. The first stage of repentance, and most of you who have who've wrestled with, um, with, with salvation have probably been here. Most of us start here. And when I'm talking about fear, what I'm talking about specifically is the fear of consequences. Right? I remember when I first got saved, I, I would lay there in, in my bed at night, and, and um, I'd be like, oh Lord, oh Lord, you know, I, I believe, I understood the gospel, but it, it just didn't feel like it stuck. And I had this weird, twisted feeling that God was scared that I was actually going to get into heaven. 
you know, and if I could somehow put the angel of death on him tonight, you know, I could, he's really close, let's take him out, you know, and I was afraid to go to sleep, I was afraid of the consequences, oh Lord, save me, I don't want to go to hell, I don't want to, I don't want to bear the weight of my own sin, you know, I know that's bad theology, but I was just figuring it out at that time, but fear, fear is a motivation, or it's a stage of repentance, there's, at this point, there's no real change of desires, necessarily. I might still have the same lust, the same cravings, the same temptations, but I have a fear that makes it so that I'm like, hmm, I'm going to turn from that. The second stage that Unger talks about is hate. Now, I say that, it sounds like, oh, we shouldn't hate. Well, there's some things we should. It's specifically talking about a strong dislike of sin and its effects. In other words, at this point, our minds, our hearts begin to shift a little bit more. And now when we look at sin with, with, the, with the fear stage, we may, we may still look at sin as something desirable. But at the hate stage, we begin to look at sin and we begin to... It's, it's ugly. It's destructive. It's bad in marriages. It's bad to kids. It destroys cultures. It's damaging. It's unhealthy. And you begin to have a, a hate for sin. I just noticed something. I didn't notice at first service. But when I'm talking about sin, I keep coming this way over to the east wing. So there's no, no intention there. Just, um, it's just kind of how I'm working this out. You guys are all right with me. It's not something I'm trying to do subtly. Um, so when I talk about sin... <laughs> So, but you see how that works. You have this. So, so with, with fear, if we get stuck in fear, if that's our only motivation for repentance, what it'll lead to is it'll lead to like this, this sense of despair. I mean, because I'm still craving the same things, but I'm afraid of the consequences. With hate, our heart begins to change, but there's still no real target for our affections. Salvation is more of a means for a better way of life. We find beauty and virtue, which isn't bad necessarily. But if you would stay in the hate stage, you'll find yourself carrying the infinite weight of moralism, which would become kind of an appearance of legalism. It's not legalism, but that's another message. Here's the one that I really like. Zonger goes on to say that there's a third stage that he characterizes as love. I love this one. It shows up in, um, in so many hymns and psalms. Specifically, it's a love for God. You can see it in, 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 um, in hymns like, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And what, is, what, what, is the, what does the hymn writer say? And it, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and what? The, the, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And there's something profound that happens if you can get to stage three. Because for the longest time, I just hovered around stage one and two. But if you could get your heart authentically, for real, into, into stage three, is you begin not to be concerned with consequences anymore. My God covers that. You don't live your life with moral checklists anymore. You only desire to know God better and be known by God. You just love God. His glory, His beauty, His sacrifice, His forgiveness, His lifting us up from being slaves to brothers. 
We're in love with God. And we're fixated on the greatest command to love God and to love our neighbors. This is where Jesus' promise of a light burden, where his yoke is easy, begins to come true in our lives. Because it's a heavy burden in the first two stages. Because you're still working, you're working. But now, it's not a matter of turning from. It's not a matter of merely recognizing the damaging effects. It's looking at the beauty of God and saying, I'm pointed this way. I'm focusing on this. I'm going to run hard after this. And yeah, there'll be some stumblings along the pathway, but I'm just fixed on this, and I'm not worried about checklists and consequences anymore. So that's always been helpful for me to look at those three stages of repentance. But is repentance necessary? Is this something that happens sometimes? Is it merely just a salvation thing? Is, is repentance part of our life? Is it, is it an important part of the gospel message, or is it an add-on to the gospel message? Jesus gives us this command in Luke 24. He's telling his disciples that everything... This is after, his, um, after he raises from the dead. He says everything that was written about him in the law must be fulfilled. He goes on, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And here's his prophecy. Here's his prediction. It's even a command. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Repentance is a key part of the gospel message. When we preach belief and faith, and neglect repentance, we're giving half a message to people. Peter, when he preached at Pentecost, and everybody comes up and listens to him and says, what's going on? What should we do? Peter said, well, your concern is enough. Have a nice day. No, he says, repent and be baptized. Peter gives another command in Acts chapter 3. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Paul, again in Acts 17, when he's speaking to the men of Athens, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I think I'm included in all people, and I live somewhere within the realm of everywhere. So I am commanded to repent. Repentance is a key part of the gospel message. Jesus is questioned about tragedy in Luke 13. About a time when some of the Jews had been slaughtered by Pilate. And they're wondering why did that happen. And when Jesus tries to bring clarity to the situation, he says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Several commentators that I looked at talked about this concept of repent or perish. Those are your options. Repent or perish. What is repentance? It's a broad topic. <laughs> so let me share what repentance is not. Repentance is not simply being afraid. 
There's a story of a man named Felix in Acts 24 who came in contact with Paul. Actually, he took, he took Paul into custody. And when Felix heard Paul talking about the gospel, it says that he was uh, alarmed. I think one version says he was filled with fear. And yet, even though Felix was alarmed and filled with fear, he never did repent. So fear is a step, but it might not be the same as repentance. Repentance is not simply being sorry. Again, when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, it says that the people were cut to the heart. They were filled with remorse, sorrow. And they asked, what should we do? And Peter didn't say, well, sorrow is pretty much the same as repentance, so you're good. You're good. I could see your sorrow. No, he says, repent. Repent. Turn from, turn to, save yourselves from this crooked generation. After feeling sorry about the truthfulness of Peter's teaching, they were told to repent. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul has been chastising the Corinthians in a previous letter, and he says some tricky things. He says, I'm really sorry that I made you guys feel sorry, but I'm really not sorry that I made you feel sorry. You know, I'm sorry you feel bad, but you needed to feel bad, so I'm not sorry. And he goes on to explain, For godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. There's a formula here. Go and put the next slide up. And we need, the, 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 all, the, all the theologians distinguish between these things. They aren't the same thing. And so it's safe for us to distinguish between them as well. Sorrow is not repentance, but sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. Salvation brings peace. So when we remove repentance from the equation, it's a, it's a pretty tricky thing that we have to deal with. Repentance is not simply a changed life. Sometimes we can look at our lives and say, look at how good I am. Look at the things I've done. I've cleaned myself up. A person can see the virtue of Christianity and conform to its patterns, but not love God. But more for personal gain or comfort. That's one of the dangers with some of the Christian self-help books out there. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything against those self-help books because they are helpful. The only thing is there are... There are truths derived from Scripture that are generally helpful for the human condition. And if I merely practice those truths so that my life can be better, we can trick ourselves into thinking that I've repented. That's one of the dangers with things like the Dave Ramsey things and the five love languages and formulas that we find in there. I'm not saying those are bad things. Those are probably good things. But people can take hold of the principles that they derive from the Bible. And what they really did was they really took on a type of religion that never brings salvation. So repentance should bring a changed life. life, But repentance is not merely a changed life. Here's one thing that I want you really to understand. And this is, a, is something that we miss in our culture. Repentance, rightly understood, should not produce shame. Sorrow is not shame. I think, I think we're afraid of repentance. We're afraid of dealing with issues of sin because we think that it's going to be an ugly thing. We think that it's going to be something that's demeaning and degrading. It's going to be fearful. We're going to be rejected. We're going to be kicked out. 
Yes, yeah, sin is a heavy topic, but repentance is a beautiful thing. And I want to help you guys see that. I've came across a, a, a blog on the Gospel Coalition's website, and they talked about a simple five-step template toward repentance based on Psalm 32. Now, repentance is more than these five steps, but sometimes stripping things down to their essence is helpful. So I want to go over these, these five steps briefly. I'm going, to, I'm, be, I'm going to be referring to Psalm 32. So if you have your Bible and you want to look at Psalm 32 in its entirety for the context, um, feel free. But I'm going to be referencing several of the verses as we go through this. The first, the first step, according to the Gospel Coalition, is honesty. It says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The first step in repentance is honesty. Covering up your sin is incompatible with a life of repentance. Now, I, I want to reference a verse. I forgot to reference this first, first service. But don't forget First John that says, Is any of you says that you are without sin, you are a liar and the truth is not within you. So we all have sin. When we repent, we're naming it. We're bringing it into the light. We're not concealing it. Concealing sin, hiding sin, disregarding sin, ignoring sin, deflecting from and distracting people from sins that are in our lives is incompatible with a life of repentance. I think there's a lifestyle. Yes, there's a repentance that happens in the general viewing of Jesus that brings salvation, but there's also repentance that should be part of our lifestyle. So first of all, repentance, the first step is honesty. We cover up our sin in, in vague ways. Sometimes we hear prayer requests like this, I'm really struggling with my thought life. Pray for me. Okay, pray for me. I'm really struggling with my thought life. That's a way of saying not much of anything at all, but saying that I kind of have a sin thing that I don't want to share with you. Right? Uh, it's vague. Or how about this one? Um, Lord, forgive me of all my sins. What a cop-out. Now, there's a place for that, but what a cop-out. It's like, oh, Lord, I'm really too lazy and ashamed to really consider what areas of my life have sin, just deal with, deal with them all so I could get on with life and not have to, because it's just too complicated for me to deal with my sins. I don't want to change. I want to be the way I am. Or I'm just not right. I say that one a lot, but that's because the truth will set me free. I'm just not right. There is a time for seeking general forgiveness. Even the Old Testament sacrificial system made room for sins that we could not identify. But realizing the pervasive nature of sin, realizing that sin is a part of all of my being, my righteousness is, is, is filthy rags, realizing that sin has infiltrated every aspect of who I am, that does not justify ignoring the sins that I am aware of and that I must confront. You follow me on that? I understand there are more sins in your life than you can recognize or name or deal with. But just because that's true doesn't mean you can't look at something that God is putting on your heart and say, I'm just going to throw that in the box of all sins. No, I need to deal with that. I need to bring it into the light and ask forgiveness. 
Ignoring sin is not safe. The second step, according to the Gospel Coalition, the first is honesty, and I'll summarize when I get to the last five, all five of these, I mean. The second one is, is recognizing the danger of concealed sin. The first is being honest with our sin. The second is recognizing the danger. Verses 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as, a, as by the heat of summer. Among other things, failure to identify your sin specifically, I'm talking about calling a spade a spade, brings the possibility of negative consequences. And these can be physical, relational, emotional, and spiritual. I have a list of five different things here. I don't want to take the time to go over them because I want to get to some other points before we're done here today. But the scriptures, I'll just list them real quick. The scriptures talk about when we cover up our sin, you won't prosper. And I don't think it's talking about merely monetarily. It's talking about we won't, we won't enjoy the eternal prosperity that comes with being a part of God's plan. When we cover up our sin, we lie about having fellowship with God. We think that we're walking with God, but 1 John says that we really aren't. Paul even says that our health, our physical health, some have even died, he says, because they have not dealt with their sins in 1 Corinthians 11. That's a tricky one. Our prayers are not listened to. Is it possible, according to Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Is it possible that the all-knowing, omniscient God will not hear our prayers because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin? Lord, why aren't you listening to me? Lord, why aren't you answering? Lord, what is going on? Psalm 66 says that the all-knowing God, if we decide to cover up our iniquity, just pretend like it's not there. Sweep it under the rug. I'm not even listening. Is it possible our prayers aren't answered for those reasons? There are many other consequences for harbored sin in the Bible. And in addition to these, psychiatrists can identify mental and physical consequences to hiding sin. In first service, I did ask Dr. McIntyre if that was true, and he said yes. That is true, so if you want examples or further teaching on that, talk with him. So third, first we have honesty. Second, we have recognizing the danger of concealed sin. Third, confess fully. David writes in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Here's something funny. If Satan makes, well, it's not funny, but Satan makes us think that the way to make yourself successful and likable is to present yourself as worthy without any definable flaws. Satan says if you, if you want to be accepted in society, you have to remove your flaws. You have to hide your, 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 your shortcomings. The truth is, until we come clean and recognize our shortcomings, recognize our limitations our unhealthy patterns, our failings, oversights, our meanness, our selfishness, our bigotry, our pride, our judgment, and on and on until we find a way to be transparent with as many of these things as we can 
we won't experience the peace and freedom to step in the directions that God is calling us. That's a trick of Satan to say that you have to clean yourself up in order to be worthy and accepted. If you're in a culture, and you might find yourself, if you're in a culture or a community that expects you to clean yourself up to be worthy and accepted, you understand that's not from God. We think that the closer we get to Christ, the less we'll need to repent. And here's the irony. The closer we get to Christ, the more we realize our need to repent. That is so true with so many aspects of the Christian life. I remember when I went to Bible college, I I really worked hard at studying the Bible as a layperson. And I thought to myself, man, I've come a long way. I think I got about 90% 90 of this Bible thing down. You know, I just... There's some hard stuff, that, 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 that top-level 10% stuff that I just got to figure out. I'll go to Bible college, cap it off. I have 100% understanding of the Bible, and I'll just get on with life and do some ministry. You know? Well, four years later, I want well, more than four in my case, but I get to the end of Bible college, and I realize that I think I got a grasp on about 10% of the Bible. 90% of it I'm just asking for grace and mercy on. You know, the, heart, the more I understand it, the more I the study, the closer I got to God, the more I was put in a position of awe and wonder of who he was. So much about the Christian life is counterintuitive. And that's the same that goes with this idea of repentance. We think that the more we walk the Christian life, we'll have less and less to repent of. The more we walk the, the Christian life, the more we realize how unlike God we are and how much we need to repent of so many things always. So, next, step, step four is rest. Rest in God. Verse 7, David says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Is it enough for you? Is it enough for you to take... to know that God takes pleasure in you? Do you need approval from me? It might make you feel better, but is it enough for you to know that God takes pleasure in you? Others may look down on you if they knew your concealed sin. But the more we cover our sin, the more it grows like a cancer. When we bring it to the open, it is ugly, but it can be dealt with. There is a joy, there is a peace in a life of repentance. What does Luke tell us in John I mean, in Luke 15, or Jesus tells us in Luke 15, he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And I believe that's sarcasm there because we all need repentance. And so how does God respond to our repentance? About time. Ah, jeez. No, he's like, yes! It's like the football games. You, know, you see the people cheering, and God's going, that's it! That's, it's like, um, I just saw like a documentary of, of John Gruden. And, uh, yeah, John Gruden, he's with Tampa Bay. He's running down the, the sidelines. There's not many people more demonstrative than John Gruden. And he's just shouting and excited about his team to score touchdowns, and the, and the stadium's erupting. Well, that's what the Scriptures talk about when a sinner repents. I think that's 
not just when a sinner turns and repents and finds eternal life, but I think that's every time one of us says, I'm calling that out, that's wrong. That's not staying in the dark anymore. That's coming into the light. Whatever you guys want to think about it, that's fine. It is what it is. And I'm not dealing with it anymore. And yes, I might stumble and struggle with it, but I'm not leaving it in the dark because it festers and because cancer there. But out here, I could have accountability. Out here, I could have honesty and authenticity. Out here, I could be who I am before God. And the heavens erupt and the stadium goes crazy and says, that's, that's it. See, repentance is a beautiful thing. It shouldn't be a frightening thing. Fifthly, we need to cling to hope. We need to cling to hope in the past. That's the finished work of the redemption on the cross. We need to cling to the hope in the present, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, who brings peace that passes all understanding. We need to bring hope in the present. That's the body of Christ that's intended to be leaned on when we're weak and discouraged. And we bring hope to the future and the eternity set before us in perfect fellowship with Christ and one another without tears or death or mourning. So according to the Gospel Coalition's formula for repenting, here's five things that will summarize them real quick for you. Number one, we need an honest self-assessment. Just be honest about where we have sin in our lives. Big sin, little sin, whatever you want to call it. Secondly, we need to have an honest recognition of the consequences. Realizing that this is damaging. This isn't light stuff. This is damaging and destructive. We need to deal with it. Thirdly, we need to totally confess our sins to God and others. The New Testament writers say, confess your sins one to another. Fourth, we need to totally rely on God's grace, knowing that it covers. And fifth, we need complete hope in God's promises. David wrote Psalm 32. David was the master of repenting. David was called what? A man after God's own heart. He was not called a man after God's own heart because of his virtue and because of his success. Rather, it was because of his honest, transparent repentance. You want to be a person after God's own heart? Don't build armies and things like that. Be a person of repentance. Be a person who could call their sin out. Be brave enough to do that. And you want to see how God responds to that? You've heard the story of the prodigal son, right? Yes. I'm going to read a story. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's helpful. It felt like it was helpful when I read it for a service. But it's a story that, fictional, that Philip Yancey writes in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. If you've read this book, you'll probably know what story I'm, I'm going to read here. Here's a story of a prodigal daughter. You want to know how God looks at you when you repent? I think this says it pretty well. Just sit back and, and listen for a second. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan. She has mentally rehearsed scores of times. She runs away. She has, she has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs and dro the drugs and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that is probably the last place her parents will look for her. 
California, maybe, or Florida, but not Detroit. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she decides. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. Teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body-piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. Besides, most of her friends are runaways, and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls. And before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple tricks a night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the big department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough worsens. One night, as she lays awake listening for footsteps, all of a sudden everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in the cold, In frightening city, she begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she's piled atop her coat. Something jolts the synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows and rows of blossomy trees in chase of a tennis ball. God, why did I leave, she says to herself. And pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and missed the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. The bus has been driving with lights on since Bay City. Tiny snowflakes hit the pavement, rubbed worn by thousands of tires and the asphalt steams. 
She's forgotten how dark it gets at night out here. A deer darts across the road and the bus driver swerves. Every so often a billboard. A sign posting the mileage to Traverse City. When the bus finally rolls into the station, its air brakes hissing in protest, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, and licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice, if they're there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great-aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats, blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad, She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know... Her dad interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. The banquet's waiting for you at home. Why is repentance such a scary thing for us? Does not the Bible tell us that's how our father responds? Yeah, it's scary to come to terms with our failures. But God celebrates and says, welcome home. Welcome home. Is repentance merely individual, personal, or should it be done corporately? God calls Nineveh to repent. They do. And he holds back his wrath for another 150 years. God calls Israel to repent. Jesus calls the religious leaders of, the, of, the, of his day to repent, and John records Jesus' call to the early churches to repent. In Daniel 9, we read how Daniel wept and prayed for the restoration of Jerusalem and listed the corporate sins using first-person plural pronouns. Yeah, I just went into grammar <laughs> in a sermon. Forgive me for that, but still. Daniel listed the corporate sins of Israel using the first-person plural pronouns. This is amazing, since the sins that Daniel is taking personal responsibility for are sins that occurred prior to Daniel, or at least during his youth. And how does God respond? He sends an angel who says, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, Daniel, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for sins committed over 400 years prior that they did not confront. Jericho and Achan's sin of stealing the idols, all of Israel suffered the consequences of that. Repentance is not just an individual thing, it's a corporate thing. If sin can be corporate and repentance can be corporate as a group, how is this done? What are the things that the 21st century church in America should repent of? What are things that First Baptist Church of Pekin in 2016 should repent of? 
And I have some thoughts on this. I mentioned last week our lack of discipleship and hospitality. Those are too easy. I believe there may be some harder things that we could confront and bring to God for healing, cleansing, and renewal. I know, when I say that, everyone's going to like, but (laughs) I do not think it would be helpful at this time to meddle with those things in this setting. So now you can exhale. (laughs) I did read an article recently about corporate repentance where the author suggests the kinds of things that a church today might need to repent of. Gossip, lack of faith, lack of prayer, failure to support God's leaders, poor stewardship of time, poor stewardship of talents, poor stewardship of treasures, unwillingness to live out the Great Commission, unwillingness to live out the Great Commandment, a dependence on man's wisdom, Sins of comparison, desiring the days of another generation, or desiring the call of another church, not, reba- not embracing our call, and so on. Is corporate sin and corporate repentance that big of a deal? Nineveh repented, and God relented of his anger. However, if you read the minor prophet Nahum, 150 years later, Nineveh returns to its ways and does not repent. God does not relent, and Nineveh is destroyed. All but two of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are told to corporately repent. If they do not, Jesus promises corporate consequences. An interesting consequence mentioned to the church in Ephesus was having their lampstand removed. There's hardly anything written about the churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3 after the first century. In other words, they ceased being a gospel presence in their cities. A time can come where God looks at a body of believers and says, I've been patient with you for years, even generations, but I'll no longer use you as my tool. I'm choosing another. That's what God is telling the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. God forbid that that would happen here at FBC. A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. This is Matthew 21. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he, here's that phrase for repentance, changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to the chief priests and elders, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward, here it is again, change your minds and believe him. First Baptist, let's not judge and condemn. Rather, let us soberly and humbly pray that God would reveal to us how he would like to use our church for his glorious purposes. Let us start with ourselves, searching our hearts to see if there is covered sin that needs to be individually exposed and forcing our sin into the light to others who will love and pray for and with you that we might repent and find favor with God. Maybe God would help us to learn how to do this as a church family, corporately, as we deal with our own sins individually. I have a few closing thoughts, but I want to close in prayer, and then I'll give you those after. Jesus, I just pray that you be with us. 
teach us what this means. It is a heavy topic. It's an important topic. It's a necessary topic. And yet, I just pray that you would help us to love one another, to lean on one another, help us to fill up one another's weaknesses, help us to encourage one another and mentor one another. Help us to love one another in such a way that the watching world would say that that must be children of God. Help us to be a presence for your glory and help us to remove the things in our own hearts that are a deterrence to what you want us to do. We pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. About a month ago, I was listening to a podcast with Eric Geiger. For those of you who have been here for a while, remember the series we did with Pastor Mark, the Identity Series? That was, um, that was Eric Geiger, and he was uh, doing a church leadership um, podcast, and he was re- referencing 1 John 1, 7 through 10, where he talks about um, confessing our sins one to another. And he said this phrase that really stuck with me. And I think it's true, and maybe it'll be an encouragement for you as you go today. He said, if I cannot name at least one thing to repent of at the end of each day, I'm in a bad place. If we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves and the truth is not in us. Which means that we should always be able to identify something that we should repent of. Whether it's something simple like um, me having to say sorry to my son for being a jerk. Or whether it's something heavy and it's been concealed for some time. Brothers and sisters, let us take this command, this discipline, this habit seriously and seek to call out our own sin. And I want to say start by finding someone you can feel safe sharing your failings and your sins and confess regularly, even daily, until you become a daily repenter. And then we could be a church of repenters. Go today, ask forgiveness from someone. Today, I'm sure you could find someone. Amen? You guys have a great day.